we've learned anything from these past couple of years, my fellow Americans, is that personal medical freedom and liberty are in crisis. America Out Loud Pulse brings together the top experts in healthcare-related fields to keep you a beat ahead. Ted Bundy, the Hillside Strangler, the Night Stalker, Jeffrey Dahmer, the BTK Killer, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, were they insane or just very cunning, depraved creatures? I'm Dr. Marilyn Singleton, and welcome to America Out Loud Pulse. Today, we're going to seriously talk about psychiatric issues and crime. First, let me do some venting. I think it's a crime that people are punished for so-called microaggressions while bad guys committing macroaggressions like burglarizing stores and assaulting people face no consequences. In 2014, the foolish California electorate passed Proposition 47. That was supposed to reduce prison overcrowding by making it so a person can steal up to $950 and only be charged with a misdemeanor. There's no jail time, no requirement for bail. The criminals are free to commit more and more crimes. The theft flash mobs are spreading across the country, even in high-end neighborhoods. Moral codes have flown out the window, not only for the perpetrators, but for some of these Soros-funded district attorneys. I remember during the 1992 presidential election, when Bill Clinton returned to Arkansas to oversee the execution of Ricky Ray Rector. Mr. Rector indeed murdered someone, but was so mentally disabled at the time of execution due to his suicide attempt by a gunshot wound to the head. This execution was particularly memorable. When the guards asked him whether he was finished with his last meal, he said he would save the pecan pie for later. Ten years later, the Supreme Court ruled that putting mentally retarded people to death was cruel and unusual and therefore unconstitutional. Some criminologists question whether all murderers are mentally ill. After all, taking a human life is a grossly abnormal thing to do. And I'm not talking about protecting yourself or others or, sadly, war. Many of us have imagined killing someone when we're really angry, but we would never actually do it. The Bureau of Justice Statistics estimated that over 50% of inmates suffering are suffering from a significant mental condition, and it's 80% of death row inmates Some psychologists say it's not the mental illness, but the substance abuse, living in high-crime neighborhoods, low income, and similar social factors. But anyway, I'm not a fan of the death penalty. Physicians are not supposed to kill people. Additionally, too many people have been exonerated after many years of incarceration. If the wrong person was executed, death is irreversible. And the death penalty costs too much money, up to 10 times more money, and those are our tax dollars, is spent on death penalty cases than to house someone for life without parole. 
According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, as of 2019, the average stay on death row is 19 years. In California, more death row inmates have died from natural causes or suicide than from execution since 1978. If we want maximum accountability, there's always Pelican Bay. At Pelican Bay, half the inmates are in security housing unit, and they're confined to their cells for up to 22 hours a day. Correctional officers deliver their food through a slot in the cell door. That sounds pretty grim to me. My guest today will discuss crime, punishment, and mental health, and a whole lot more. Dr. Renee Kohansky is a board-certified psychiatrist with fellowship training in forensic psychiatry. She completed her residency at Georgetown University, where she was chief resident and had her fellowship at the William S. Hall Psychiatric Institute at the University of South Carolina. She's been a board examiner for the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology, an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at the Medical College of Georgia and the University of Connecticut Schools of Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kohansky. Thank you, Dr. Singleton. Pleasure to be here as always. Well, we have, it can be, I think, a very interesting topic. A lot of people watch Law and Order and, and the various um, uh, crime shows and true crime, not so true crime. And it always comes up that somebody was, were they insane or were they competent? We're going to go through all that stuff and get the truth about what goes on when a person is examined. First of all, can you explain the difference between being competent versus being insane? Yes, I can actually. Uh, so first of all, <laughs> oh good, I got the right person. <laughs> um, first, they are one distinction I'd like to make is that these are legal terms; they're not mental health terms. A lot of people think that these are mental health decisions and mental health professionals such as psychologists and psychiatrists and even um, and even social workers offer expert opinions. But the person who makes the decision on whether or not these standards are met are actually the triers of fact, which are either judges or juries. So competency refers to a defendant's state of mind at the time of trial, a very, very important distinction. Insanity, or what's known as criminal responsibility, refers to the defendant's state of mind at the time of the crime. So in order for somebody to actually put forth a defense of not guilty by reason of insanity, they actually have to be competent to stand trial. You have to be in your right state of mind in order to, it sounds sort of, you know, almost paradoxical, but you must be in the right state of mind to go to trial to then put forth the defense that when you committed a crime, you were not in the right state of mind. And we'll go through what the de definitions of, are of being um, not criminally responsible or not guilty by reason of insanity. But in order to do that, you must be competent. And competent refers to your state of mind 
at the time of trial and being insane or not criminally responsible refers to your state of mind at the time of committing an offense. Well, what are the criteria to say somebody's competent to stand trial? There are, are a number of different standards, and they're based on uh, on various case law and various um, uh, various landmark cases. Uh, the, the the big one that uh, that's used has to do with a case called Dusky versus the United States. And, uh, and, and the background of this case was that there was a defendant, Richard Milton Dusky, and he, along with his co-defendants, had uh, kidnapped a young woman and had actually raped her and she escaped. And, at the, and, and when, the, um, when they went to trial on, on her, uh, when, actually, when they went to arrest, when they went to arrest the, the, Milton Dusky, the, uh, the FBI, he said to the FBI agents when they said, well, you're being arrested for kidnapping. He said, oh, well, that's kind of serious, isn't it? And they realized, well, maybe something's not quite right here. And his lawyers found that they couldn't actually work with him, didn't really understand what was going on, didn't really, wasn't really able to participate with him. So this, that was that was the landmark case. It was called Dusky. And the criteria for that we that we commonly use for whether somebody is competent to stand trial is basically whether or not they can uh, participate with their attorney in a meaningful way, whether they understand the charges against them, um, whether they understand uh, there's like a whole bunch of different standards you know that you go through, but these are the kinds of questions you ask, whether they understand the charges, whether they understand uh, in in um, in, in accepting a plea bargain, they're forfeiting their right to a trial, whether they have a rational as well as a factual understanding of the charges against them and that they can participate in a meaningful way in their trial. How does this come into play? We've heard about these cases where people are browbeaten kind of psychologically into confessing when they really didn't have anything to confess. And recently, especially because DNA is now so broadly used, we found people who've been exonerated and people say, but they confessed. Uh, does, does that have something to do with mental illness, competency, or is it just a one-off thing where they were so beaten down psychologically, they just blurted out anything just so they could go away. Well, I mean, that would be an, an interesting question is, is to whether the, whether the confession was uh, a competent confession. It's a kind of a different issue, but really kind of an intriguing one. So the, I think that would be a separate issue on mm -hmm. confession. The, and, and I think that that would be a, certainly one that a lawyer could raise at trial, whether or not a confession was that was obtained was one that was lawfully obtained. But whether or not the person is competent to stand trial and whether the confession is a lawfully obtained confession or, or could be tied together. So if somebody's not competent to stand trial and, and then they confessed, you could certainly raise issues about the validity of the confession. Okay. I've, I've always kind of wondered about that. Years and years ago, I saw a movie about a young man who was um, 
not fed for hours and kept up for almost two days. And finally, he confessed to killing his mother. And a reporter several years later just doggedly tracked down the case and found out, no, he didn't do it. Yeah, if you torture somebody, you can get somebody to <laughs> anything. I mean, there are all. I'm sure there are protections against, you know, torturing somebody into a confession. Uh, we we've seen that in POW camps where you can you can get people to confess to to doing just about anything. Uh, it, it, I mean, we could look at our current system and what's what's happening in in certain legal jurisdictions at. Even in the United States, well, you're, you're talking about the United States of America, yeah. but in, in current in current times, where you put people under duress, you you sleep deprive them, and one could certainly say that a confession was coerced. So, a coerced confession and competency to stand trial are two separate issues, but it definitely definitely forensic issues. And I think you could get a forensic expert to come and testify and say that this was not this was not freely. Uh, given this was not a freely given confession and and you don't have to be mentally ill to have a coerced confession and we can look at you know even people that might be um you know in in today's in today in today's climate i think all kinds of things are coerced well i have a question And this is, again, something you see on the TV and I know happens in real life, is you have a patient who has schizophrenia and didn't take his medications, but if you gave him his medications, then he would be competent to stand trial. Do you give him his medications, even though in regular situations that's a voluntary act on the part of the patient. Absolutely 100%. So that comes to a very important issue in terms of competency to stand trial. So if you do an evaluation on somebody, and I think schizophrenia is a really good example because it's one of the illnesses where if you don't take medication, you can become delusional where you could have hallucinations, or a, a delusion is, a, is, is, is something which is a fixed false system of belief that's not consistent with reality. So you can believe people are out to get you. You can believe that your, your uh, lawyer is part of a conspiracy. And because of your schizophrenia, you are not able to uh, participate with your attorney in a meaningful way in preparing a defense. So schizophrenia is a great example. So when it comes to trial, Um, when it comes to preparing a defense, uh, this is one of those cases where competency is a a place where you are, in my, not only in my opinion, but in the law's opinion, you are ethically allowed to involuntarily medicate somebody for, and I think for two reasons. Reason number one is everybody in our country has a right to a trial and everybody has the right to the presumption of innocence. So if you are not competent to stand trial because you've not ta- either because you've not taken your medication or you've been undiagnosed or because you have a medical a, a mental illness um, and because of your mental illness you're not competent to stand trial then you can't participate in your in your in your defense and you can't you might have some information that were you competent you could provide um, you could provide assistance to your counsel in establishing your innocence. 
So you have the presumption of innocence. And the only way for you to get your presumption of innocence is to go to trial. And everybody has that right. And that's why there is an ethical case for involuntary medication to to restore somebody for competency to stand trial. Argument number one. Argument number two is that the state has a right to bring everybody to trial, that there's an interest in the state in having justice be done. And so there's an argument for involuntary medication for competency, for restoration, for competency to stand trial. Now, that argument ends once trial has happened and the case has has been completed, then you can no longer involuntarily medicate somebody for the purposes of the case. And then it re- then you go back in terms of involuntary medication, where you go back to um, the, the protections that all individuals have for, for body and not having your body disturbed. And that's you know imminent risk to self or others or gravely disabled. And then we get into all kinds of very, very um, interesting and complicated issues in terms of the forensic uh, issues once you've been uh, once you've been convicted and especially if you have capital murder cases. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about that and many, many more things. We'll go into that distinction uh, about being not guilty by reason of insanity. So and see the difference between these two concepts. Right now, I'd just like to talk about something I've talked about every week, mainly because it's so good, is Cofix RX. Cofix RX is a nasal spray. By its name, you can tell it was invented during the COVID panic of, gee, now almost three years ago. Hard to believe, isn't it? And it was found out early on that Povidone iodine was a powerful antiviral, and that's mainly what's in this. Iodine plus xylitol, both of which have these antiviral properties. So you squirt it up your nose, and I like to do it when I think I'm going to get a big exposure after I've come back from a big store that I don't normally go to, that sort of thing. And you look at it, You're trying to keep those germs at bay in your nose. It's kind of like the airbag in the car. You can reduce the impact and we keep these viruses from getting all the way down our respiratory tract, down into the lungs where we will get really, really sick. Lots of doctors and pharmacists recommend Cofix RX and the part that I love about it, it was invented in the USA and it's made in the USA. So what could be better than that? Check out our page. There's a little button for Cofix RX. You can read more about it and see if it's right for you. Cofix RX nasal solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flu, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. Millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of the toxic spike protein. 
Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed their spike support formula to counteract harmful spike protein from COVID-19 and vaccines so you can feel your best. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Before the break, I said we'd start talking about not guilty by reason of insanity. And we'll get all these issues at some point get intertwined in our complex legal system. And it is complex, but it should be, and most of the time is for the benefit of the defendant and benefit of justice. So everyone has their constitutional rights, but the prosecutor isn't hamstrung. So Dr. Kohansky, let's go into not guilty by reason of insanity. Right. And I just want to go back and just underscore that competency refers to a defendant's state of mind at the time of trial and that it's whether the defendant has sufficient present ability to consult with his lawyer to a reasonable degree of rational understanding and whether he has a rational as well as a factual understanding of the proceedings against him. Because it's possible for a defendant to have a completely rational, uh, completely factual understanding of the of the charges against him, but uh, but it's not rational. He could say, "Yes, I, you know, yes, I understand that my lawyer is going to help me. Yes, I understand that I could plead out and uh, get a reduced sentence." But then, when it comes to the rational component, he could say, "Yes, but I believe God is going to intervene, and I'm not going to do any time." And so you can see that the rational part of competency isn't isn't there, and. And the other part of competency is that you could start a trial and somebody could be competent when you're starting trial. But as you proceed through trial, a defendant may stop taking their medication or there could be something that happens and all of a sudden your competency changes. So competency is a very interesting and fluid concept. And that's happened in the number of cases that I've that I've been expert on. So just just uh, mm-hmm. just something very interesting. So, yeah, and definitely good to keep that distinction in mind. Competency is here and now. Okay. So moving on to the not guilty by reason of insanity, which refers to a defendant's state of mind when the defendant committed the crime. There are um, a number of different standards that are used. And what when people see, you know, all, you know, I have to say that television has taken a relatively unsophisticated um, audience and made and made people very, very, very sophisticated. The the case that most people are familiar with, um, and and I think they get it from Law and Order, Order is uh, has to do with the McNaughton standard. And I'll tell you, and I'll actually tell you what the McNaughton case was. Uh, Daniel McNaughton was a woodish uh, was a was a, a Scottish woodturner, and he he was he um, what he did was he he felt he felt persecuted by the minister Sir Robert Peel, and he stalked him. And unfortunately, he he mistook his uh, his secretary, his the prime minister's secretary Edward Drummond, for him, and he shot and he killed him. And um, and McNaughton. Uh, is where we got the standard of McNaughton. And he, by the way, would not have passed our McNaughton standard of insanity. So the standard of, of, of 
McNaughton, and I'm just going to actually straight out read it, is to establish a defense on the grounds of insanity, it must clearly be proved that at the time of committing an act, a party must have been laboring under such defect of reason of mind to, as to not know the nature and quality of what he was doing, that he did not know what he was doing was wrong. Basically, the not knowing right from wrong. And McNaughton would not have passed the knowing, not knowing right from wrong standard because he practiced shooting and he, and he went after the guy with deliberate intent. So a McNaughton standard of not knowing right from wrong is one particular standard of insanity. And insanity standards vary state by state. Some standards, some states use McNaughton. Other states will use a um, another another standard, which is called the Model Penal Code, or it's also known as the uh, as the uh, American Law Institute. And basically, this is much more liberal. And it says that a person is not responsible for his criminal conduct. If at the time of the, of the crime, he was suffering from mental disease or defect, he lacked substantial capacity to appreciate the criminal con criminality of his conduct, or he did not know, um, or he did not, or, con or conform the conduct, uh, or, con or to conform his conduct to the requirements of his law, of the requirements of the law. So there's actually two components to that, to that standard. The one, the first part is that he didn't appreciate uh, basically, he didn't appreciate what he was doing was wrong is the first part. And the second part is a new part. It's that he couldn't conform his behavior to the requirements of the law because of a mental disease or defect. It's an or. And what happened was Hink when Hinckley shot President Reagan, because they had the model pen penal code that they used as their standard. And that little or gave Hinckley a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict and sent him to a um, it sent him to a, a mental institution rather than a prison. And many people were very, very angered by that. They, they felt that when you shoot a president or try to assassinate a president, president regardless, you there's no way that you should be found not guilty by reason of insanity. And because of that, and they call that conform conduct to the requirements of the law, they call that a volitional component because it's within your control or, or, or not within your control. And many states after that, they split off that conforming into a separate verdict called a guilty but mentally ill. And so that they kept the first part, which was a basically a modified McNaughton, and they took the or part and they said, if you can't conform your your behavior to the requirements of the law because of mental illness, you don't get not guilty by reason of insanity. You get something called guilty but mentally ill. And guilty but mentally ill is not an acquittal. It's a conviction. Okay. Well, and I think now that's something that I didn't realize that difference. So you have not guilty by reason of insanity, but then you have guilty, but mentally and, ill. And not all states have, that's called GBMI, not all states have a GBMI verdict. Um, but there are some that where I trained in South Carolina, they do have a GBMI verdict. And, um, and, and I have issue with the GBMI verdict. I actually don't think it's, I don't think it's a good solution. And by the way, some states are even more liberal um, they, they, they have an even more liberal standard, but let me, let me just talk about the GBMI for a second. 
So I think with with the NG, the NGRI, the NGRI verdict, not guilty by reason of insanity, is something that juries really, really have to struggle with. They really have to think about whether whether you're using the the ALI or the model penal code, which um, in its in in whatever form you're using it, whether you're using it with the um, with the full uh, with the full modified McNaughton plus the volitional code or not, the jury really has to sit there and think, did the defendant have a mental disease or defect? And because of that mental disease or defect, either not know right from wrong or depending on the state, also not not be unable to conform their conduct to the requirements of the law. And they have to actually struggle with that. They have to think about it. They have to think, did it rise to that level of impairment? And then, and they have to render either an acquittal, or they have to say no, it didn't. And they have to make the they have to say that the defendant is guilty. With the GBMI verdict, the guilty but mentally ill, the the jury or the judge has to. It's almost like a I don't really have to struggle with this completely because I'm recognizing that the defendant has a mental illness, and they have a mental illness that's pretty serious because because I'm thinking it's so serious that it needs to enter into the verdict to some degree. So I'm doing my job as a juror, and I'm going to say yes. I see that there's that there's that there's some component of mental illness here. I'm doing my job, but I'm not going to struggle with it completely. I'm going to give. I'm going to do it. I'm going to give you a GBMI. I'm not going all the way. The problem is it does nothing for the defendant or really for society. You might as well just give them a straight up guilty because the GBMI, the defendant goes to prison. And in fact, they probably maybe even get more time because now you're not only somebody that's been convicted of, usually if you're going for a GBMI, it's probably a pretty serious crime. But not only are you going to prison, but you're going to prison and you're going to prison labeled as somebody mentally ill enough to have committed a crime. And anybody who has mental illness gets services in in prison. I mean, I've run a number of of prison clinics and um, the ones that I've been in have had really pretty good, you know, even even in some of the, you know, I would say less funded places, uh, there's pretty decent access to mental health services. And obviously that's, don't mind, I'm sorry, my cat's in the background. It's just, it's just there. I'm sorry. Um, but, but there's, there's access to mental health services. And then we could even, we could spend a whole show talking about the criminalization of mentally ill, which is, which is a whole nother subject. But my point is that you have access to mental health services. So whether, whether, whether you were found, um, it, with GBMI, you're, all you're doing is you're saying, well, we're giving them mental health services. Well, they had access to mental health services anyway if they were found guilty. So the next question might be is, well, if you were found GBMI, maybe it would protect somebody from the death penalty. And in fact, it doesn't. So people who have been found GBMI have been given the death penalty. So my point is, I don't, I don't think I'm not a person who's in favor of the GBMI. I think either you struggle with an NGRI verdict, um, or it's, or it's, uh, or guilty. It's just straight up guilty. Well, when you talk about not being able to appreciate right and wrong or conform your conduct to the requirements of the law, these sorts of things, that brings up an an issue of children. Now, I realize this isn't straight, you know, 
forensics in that, you know, the regard that we're talking, but how can a child appreciate right from wrong? How young can you accuse a child? I just read quite recently that a 10-year-old killed his mother and he's now 11 and they want to try him as an adult. Well, typically, I believe that the age of uh, adult trying someone as an adult you know, I guess that's a really good question, Marilyn. I don't pretend. <laughs> I mean, ten, 10 is just too young. You can't, a 10 year old doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have a fully developed brain. You can't, you, you can't possibly try a 10 year old as an adult and just think about our own children. So I, I, I certainly know that we try 16 year olds as adult and maybe even 15 year olds. And I do know of a 13 year old that was, um, that was tried for a pretty heinous crime. Was he tried as an adult is an interesting question. Um, but 10 is, is too, I'll certainly say that 10 is too young. You just, you just don't have, no matter what the crime is at age 10, you don't have, you don't have the frontal lobe capacity to understand all the intricacies of what's going on at a, at a trial. So you cannot be tried as an adult at 10. Well, I I found that pretty shocking. And I, I, I don't think, you, yeah, I agree with you. I'm with you on that. Wow. And I can't remember what state it was. I remember, oh, some time ago, a 12-year-old was tried as, as an I'm adult. I'm thinking 12 and 13, you're getting closer. But but still, um, you still can't even, you know, you're just certainly not 10. Not, think of a 10-year-old. Well, I I was stunned. I thought, how? But then again, we uh, off topic. We talk about all this gender stuff and letting kids at that age decide what gender they are. So, you know, well, suddenly they're giving ten year olds the brain of an adult. Well, we know that frontal lobes aren't fully developed until twenties. But even if we don't want to go to full development. Uh, even, you know, even to look, look at insurance tables. I think in, there's no informed consent on some of these things. So um, this is, you know, some of the things that we're doing with children is absolutely makes no medical sense. And that's a whole nother topic of discussion. If you can't provide informed consent, then you can't, uh, then you can't do a medical procedure. So and by the way, with competency, somebody had raised this up. There is, there's not informed consent because the components of informed, you know, with involuntary medication, it's, it's by definition, not, uh, not informed consent because it's involuntary. And the first, and the first component of informed consent is voluntary. And the second one is competency. And the third one is information. So you got, you got two out of three you could certainly provide information, but you can't provide, it's not voluntary and it's not competent. This, it's one of these things, I feel like it's a dog chasing his tail. And some people, you know, when they plead, okay, we're going to plead not guilty by reason of insanity. What does that do to the burden of proof? Normally, it's the prosecutor's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed the crime. What happens when you try to plead not guilty by reason of insanity? Ah, you've been doing a homework. So it uh, it's an affirmative defense. So the burden of proof actually shifts. As you said, normally it's the prosecutor's um, 
it, and it's actually, it's a pretty heavy burden of proof. It's beyond reasonable doubt, which some say is like, you have to prove like to 99% certainty. Others say 95 to 96% certainty, but it's pretty darn certain. Affirmative defense shifts the burden of proof to the defendant. So now the burden of proof is upon the defendant to prove to the judge or jury that they are not guilty by reason of insanity. And it's to a lesser, it's to a lesser burden. It's either by clear, uh, clear and convincing or, um, and now the other, the other standard just went out of my head for some strange reason, clear and convincing or preponderance of evidence. Um, and one is like more, is more likely than not um, so it's like 50, 51%. And the other one is somewhere in between that by 70%. And different states require, uh, it's either, South Carolina, to my surprise, was actually preponderance and clear and convincing um, are in other states. So, uh, the, so the burden of proof actually shifts to the defendant. And, and the other examples, by the way, of where you need to have a, an affirmative defense would be uh, duress defense, uh, would be uh, self-defense, um, Geez, it's all going on in my head because uh, because I'm trying to think of it. But there there are five there's five occasions of affirmative defense, which is NGRIs, one duress, affirm, um, and I can't think, I can't think of the other ones, but it'll come to me as we're talking. I, and I think entrapment is one of them. That's where the police induce you to commit the crime, and you can right. argue that you wouldn't have committed it if it right. hadn't been for the police egging you on quite seriously. Well, when we get back, I'd like to talk about the punishment aspect and how you figure out how long somebody's detained when they're um, found guilty with some mental illness versus not guilty by reason of insanity or just plain guilty. So we'll get into that and who decides how long you go to prison or mental hospital when we get back from the break. Changing the world one person at a time. Here we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. We know that if America fails, the world will fail. It is incumbent upon us to carry the torch for liberty. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system to keep our bodies free from harmful bacteria, viruses, and toxins become less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. Before the break, I wanted to ask you, doctor, about punishment. 
or act detainment because I guess if you're mentally ill, you can't consider it a punishment. Can you go through how you figure out the standards for how long somebody should stay detained after these various um, guilties or not guilties? Well, it's interesting because um, you're absolutely right. So when you're found not guilty by reason of insanity, it's not punishment. It's an acquittal, and what you're and you're getting treatment, and you're sent to depending depending on what the what the charge is and what the um, what the disposition is. You're you're sent to a mental institution because usually, I mean, usually if it's an NGRI, you're not going to plead NGRI unless it's something serious. Otherwise, it's it's pled out. Even even if there are mental health issues, and even if it is something that rises to NGRI, you're just not going to do it because what happens is that you tend to uh, you tend to be in a in a hospital long for a long period of time. So for let's for for example, let's take a let's take a look at straight up murder. Somebody who's convicted of a charge of murder tends to be incarcerated for 15 years. But if you were to be found not guilty by reason of insanity, um, so let me actually let me just specify what happens. You so you so you get committed to a maximum security forensic hospital, and then the criteria for continued involuntary hospitalization revert back to civil criteria, which is that uh, you have to be in um, in need of treatment and an imminent risk to self or others. And then you go before. Uh, usually, there's a there's a periodic review, and then you go before a judge, and then the treatment team uh, makes recommendations on uh, on whether or not uh, you are currently an imminent risk to self or others. If you've committed murder, generally speaking, a judge is not going to be inclined to release you from a maximum security forensic hospital, and you tend to you know, spend more time in a maximum security hospital for a not guilty by reason of insanity verdict um, acquittal than you would if you had a straight up guilty charge. Now, I would say that that's not necessarily a, a bad thing because one could say that if in your state of mental illness, you were so ill that you murdered another human being, um, it, that kind of long-term treatment might be indicated. Uh, many states have something called conditional releases, where once you get released, you are highly monitored. With the program works in conjunction with the probation department, so that uh, certainly with things like schizophrenia, you have to you get forms of medications that are intramuscular, so that it's not like. Uh, you you don't know if you're not getting the medication. You have to show up and get your medication, and it's in the form of a of a of a shot. So that if the person doesn't show up and get the shot, then their then their conditional release is immediately revoked, and they go back to the hospital. So to answer your question, it tends to happen certainly with charges like murder that if somebody is found not guilty by reason of insanity uh, on a charge like that, they tend to spend more time in a hospital than they would if they'd had a straight up guilty charge. And it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's probably favorable for 
everybody because the defendant the defendant gets treatment and he usually gets at least in the hospitals i've worked at really pretty good treatment i mean you know you're talking about somebody nowadays hospitalization for mentally ill people is pretty cursory and and it's kind of a sad state of affairs where we've gone in terms of treatment overall it's actually you know so it's it's a whole statement about what happened in terms of the, where we deinstitutionalized and the dollars were supposed to follow the patients into the community, into these mental health centers. And the concept was good, but the dollars never followed them. And here people get comprehensive treatment. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, everything is sort of, everything is sort of a risk benefit analysis. I, I, I look at the people that I treated when I was doing inpatient work, and especially with some of the more seriously ill people and some of the ones that were more refractory to treatment. And I think that it was, it was compassionate. It was compassionate and it was good. It wasn't always, I mean, there's always exceptions, but, it, but, you know, when you think about what you were looking at and the kinds of crimes that were happening and the kinds of treatment that were occurring, I can't say that it was a, a bad outcome. So I don't know if that, does that answer your question? Well, yeah, it's, it's one of these things you, and I, you know, how much is true. And I know how much is something you read in novels where somebody's not guilty by reason of insanity and they get out in 10 years because they seem sane. Well, is that fair? Is that just it, had they been uh, found guilty, they might be in prison. Let's just say but that's not true. You know, <laughs> but it's actually yeah. not true that they would have been in prison if they'd been if they'd been found guilty. And there are mistakes, and there are, and it did happen. There was actually a case that I had at Georgia Regional Hospital where somebody was found not guilty by reason of insanity on a charge of murder, and he had actually gotten out of the hospital on a conditional release, and he did reoffend, and everybody in the community was really upset about that. But people get out on straight-up murder charges and reoffend all the time. So uh, how many people are beating the system? I don't know. I think less people are beating the system on NGRIs than they are on straight-up straight charges. And it's no picnic, let me tell you, to be found NGRI. It's no picnic to be um, to, to be mentally ill. Now, are there people, let me tell you, I've done my share. <laughs> I've done my share of people coming in, trying to malinger, trying to malinger competency and trying to malinger NGRIs um, because the other side of it is, yeah, you can, the, 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 continued, uh, the continued criteria for somebody to stay in the hospital uh, is is are you an imminent risk to self or other or so gravely disabled that you can't care for yourself? And there was a case that I, I, I shared in a in a conference where there was a um, this was in Georgia and it was a young man who had when he was I think he, uh, this goes to you raised an interesting question because I got I got him I got him later and he, he I think he was thirteen when he was tried and he had murdered his mother and his sister, I believe. And they did not even put forth, the, the, the defense didn't even put forth an NGRI defense. I don't, I, and like I said, I came, I came in later in the case. So the jury looked at him and he was this angelic looking young man. And they looked at him and they said, just like you said, there's no way you could be sane to have killed your mother and your and your sister. You must be not guilty by reason of insanity. And he was committed to the state hospital. 
And they found, and by the way, in terms of uh, psychiatric diagnoses of, you know, for which, um, you know, you, you, the criteria are you did not, you are unable to distinguish legal uh, uh, right from wrong, antisocial personality disorder or sociopathy or acute intoxication are, are exclusionary from that from that definition. So if you're quote unquote, a sociopath or antisocial personality, that doesn't count as a mental illness. So this kid came in and he had no psychiatric diagnosis, nothing, zero. And he had been in the psychiatric hospital by the time I got there, maybe five or six years with literally no documented psychiatric illness, not even, not even like, not even a substance use diagnosis. And, um, and the judge, and the judge was angry at the jury when they did that. He was like, really, really understandably, because a psychiatric hospital, in my opinion, in my ethical opinion, is not a place of punishment. People are there for treatment. People are there. And, and I believe in the NGRI verdict, by the way, in my heart and my soul, I believe in the NGRI verdict. That's why I'm a forensic psychiatrist. And I also believe in treating people in, in prisons who are not NGRI, but just people who are you know, people have committed crimes and have mental illness deserve to be treated. So, um, so he was there no for five years when I got him, he was, he had gotten married in the course. And when I came on board as the attending on that unit, uh, he'd been there, he'd gotten married, he was functioning, he had a life. And, uh, and the judge said, as long as you're, as, as long as I'm judge, I will never, ever let you out. And he was angry at the jury, at the jury for finding NGRI. He felt he should have been incarcerated, which is probably the case because he had no mental illness and he doesn't belong in a mental hospital if you don't have a mental illness. And that judge, I guess, subsequently retired. I came on board. Um, he got another, he had a very, very good attorney. And, and as a forensic psychiatrist on a, on a state hospital, everybody has access to you. You're nobody's witness. Defense has access to you. Prosecution has access to you. Everybody has access to you. So the new, um, the new lawyer came on or the, or the same lawyer is a good lawyer, whoever it was. And they, they came over and they said, okay, doctor, you know, what's his, what's his diagnosis? I said, he has no psychiatric diagnosis. And they said, um, so for continued, uh, hospitalization, don't you need a psychiatric diagnosis? I said, yes. Um, and, and they said, oh, no, they said, would you be willing to testify if you had no diagnosis? I said, yes, of course. It's that you have to testify to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. What is your, what is your opinion? So they got a new judge and they said, okay, doctor, what is your, what is his diagnosis? And I said, he has no psychiatric diagnosis. He's been here for five years with no psychiatric diagnosis. And they released him. And then what happened? He, he done over. So no, so he went on a conditional release, um, went out into community. I, you know, I ultimately left the hospital. I have no idea what happened after that, but he, up until he, you know, he had been functioning. I don't know what, I don't know why he did what he did. No, he, he was in the hospital for five years. Nobody knows why he did what he did. He and thought he may, you know, impulse control, lack of impulse control. Uh, I mean, it would have shown up, but it would have shown up in the hospital, didn't show up in the hospital, but maybe it was the confines of the hospital that allowed him to keep his impulse control controlled. Mm -hmm. Having you know, a routine or whatever. Well, having, having the structure of an inpatient psychiatric ward is pretty, you know, is, is pretty good um, external controls. Yeah. Well, I have a question because you had as an exception to um, defining insanity was the personality disorder of being a sociopath or an anti-social is the same thing antisocial pd or sociopath or psychopath mm -hmm. they're all synonymous and how 
is there anything that can be done about a sociopath? Is a person just born that way and they just have a circuit missing or what? Well, the theory is changing on it. I mean, that used to be that used to be kind of the 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 thinking on it. Um, nowadays, there's a little bit of there's a little bit of um, leeway in that there's you know there's some behavioral modification that folks are thinking can help with it. Um, but there's a very interesting book. It's called, I, I highly, highly recommend it. It's like the quintessential book. It's called The Mask of Sanity by Cleckley. And it talks about this. It's, you know, it was written, geez, I want to say like maybe 1950s. It might even be earlier, but it still holds true. And it talks about, it really talks about this in really great detail. And it really does not necessarily have anything to do with people having a poor upbringing or coming from any kind of uh, bad background. It, it just seems to be that there's something missing. And it, and it used to be that, you know what, you, you, it's, it's like, like almost like, you know, not, I don't want to say this because the thinking is a little bit different, but sort of, you know, they could look right, right at you and lie to your face and, and the jails and prisons are full of them. And, uh, you know, whether it's, <laughs> whether it's a, a missing circuit or, um, or some sort of um, mis disconnect, don't know. But whatever it is, there's a large criminality to it. And a lot of times a, a good solution is incarceration. Well, yeah, I, I find it interesting. Years ago, I had read a book if, called if, The, the way, Sociopath if, Next if crimes, Door. If crimes have been committed, by the way, not, you know, not yeah. if you're not committing Right, crimes. right, of course. And, you know, but the book was talking about how there's a lot of sociopaths out there, but they're able to function in society and able to uh, create emotion, even though deep down inside, they don't really have that emotion and smile when they're supposed to smile and all this sort of thing. It can be and, judges. Hmm? It can be judges. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure they can be anything. If, if judges, doctors, lawyers, teachers. <laughs> that's right. You know, your as husband, long as your you're wife. good. Let's hope not. <laughs> <laughs> not yours. I mean, you. <laughs> but well, I mean, I've thought about when you say your husband, I think about that a lot. I think about the BTK killer's wife and some of these other people who are married and have kids and they go off and do these heinous crimes. And you wonder, was the person ignoring the signs or is that the real difference of just being a sociopath versus being truly seriously mentally ill where your spouse or the your loved ones couldn't help but notice that something was awry. I I I'm not familiar with the case, so I don't know. Oh, he BTK. He he was called BTK because it for buying torture kill, and he was in the Midwest, I think Kansas, and he killed several people. He was a park ranger. He had a regular job, he, you know, he had a regular mm -hmm. family and, you know, he did this on the side. Yeah, people sort of love the movie, the, the series Dexter, where this guy like sublimates his desire to kill. And my experience in, in this world is that that's really a nice, interesting series, but it doesn't quite work that way, but it makes <laughs> a very intriguing series. And 
the person who wrote it did a great job writing it, but it doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, I remember Dexter. It, But I do find it interesting when somebody shoots up an office or, you know, does one of these weird acts that they interview the neighbors and they say, well, he was a quiet man. You know, it was like, he- like, you know what? A lot of times, well, certainly I find with, and, and today it's a whole different thing. When it first started, it was one, I, I think it was one phenomenologically different process than what's going on now. Um, but a lot of times when you start digging in, there's, there's always, there's always a sign. There's always a history. It didn't, it didn't come out of nowhere. It was, there's, it, there's history. There's, you know, in, in, you know, in hindsight, hindsight. And, and, right. But, and, and sometimes not so much hindsight. It's like right there, it's right sticking, you know, right there in front of you. And what you had to do was saying, yeah, no, we all, you know, you just got to interview the right people. But, um, but a lot of times it was, it, it didn't come out of nowhere it was there. You just you just weren't looking for it, but it was there. Well, kind of like that bad boyfriend or bad girlfriend. You just didn't want to see it. Right. Well, <laughs> on that cheery note, can you <laughs> believe it? Our hour is up and there's so much more to discuss. I'm going to have to have you back to talk about the criminalization of mental illness. This is really become a big issue with homeless issue and substance abuse and all this sort of thing. So we're going to have to have a whole nother conversation. Would you agree to come back, doctor? Oh Yeah. Yeah. I really want to talk about that. I think it's really sad. Yeah. Okay. Well, we will. We'll organize the time and we'll have our listeners keep their ear out for that one. So thanks for coming on the show and we'll talk again soon. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank everybody for listening to America Out Loud Pulse. We have a new feature. We've got AmericaOutloud.shop. And it's it's a great website. If you figured it out, it's a shopping website. And you can get Cofix Rx there, stuff from the wellness company, a huge bookstore of books by written by our guests or other books of interest. And if you put a discount code in, out loud, there'll be various discounts on these products. And remember our other feature email. If you have any questions, you can send them in to americaoutloud.news forward slash pulse, and we'll get an answer to you. So like I like to say, whether you agree or have other opinions, please share the show. Thanks again for listening. And until next week, Say it loud, I'm free and I'm proud.